Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into real cases. The content may be triggering or inappropriate for some audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And I'm Amber. And we're back to talk about some horrible people. There's so many of them. There are. We could never end this podcast. Yeah, it could go on forever. It could, because they're just going to keep being shitty people. Yes. The shitty person that we're talking about today is Lonnie David Franklin Jr., otherwise known as the Grim Sleeper. Oh, that sounds creepy. It is very creepy, creepy and I'll get to it in a little while, but the reason that he was given this name is because he was thought to have taken, oh, like a twenty-year hiatus between murders. Oh, but I don't think he did. You don't believe it? I don't believe it. That's a long hiatus. It really is. So I'm going to tell you about him. He was born in Los Angeles on August 30th, 1952. His mother Ruby was. A strong-willed former beauty school student from Texas. Mm. And his father, Lonnie Sr., was a longshoresman. The research on Mr. Lonnie here is a little bit odd in his childhood. Um, We know that not too long before Lonnie Jr. was born, and maybe even when Ruby was still pregnant with him, his parents got into a head-on collision and his mom was thrown out of the car And doctors actually had to reattach her left ankle. Mm, Oh, my gosh. Like I said, the timeline is a little bit odd. We're not sure if it happened when he was in utero or when he was uh, just after he was born. But either way, this was pretty significant. She did survive. And Lonnie Jr. grew up in South, uh, South Central on East 78th Street. And then he, they moved to Grand Avenue, 85th Street, with his parents and his sister Patricia, who was five years younger than him. And and Ruby actually had an older son named Otis from another relationship in Texas that she had. But he grew up with relatives that were in Texas and visited uh, Lonnie's home frequently, especially during the summer. So it sounds like she kind of, she was a beauty queen and had this baby Maybe wasn't ready to be a mom. Mm -hmm. So her family stepped in, cared for Otis. And then when she moved on and married Lonnie Sr., she still maintained a relationship with Otis. And then then she had Lonnie and had this horrific accident and then had Patricia five years later. Franklin was described as, I I do want to give a shout out to... Um, one of my big sources here is a book that you can buy on Amazon and other places that you get books. They have Kindle version. Uh, there's a free audiobook version, which I took advantage of. It's called The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. And it's by Christine Pelis- Ooh, Pelisek, P-E-L-I-S-E-K. Okay. And it's a really good book, but Christine was actually an investigative reporter and she kind of cracks this case essentially and then writes a book about it yeah it was that's so cool when that happens I know when it takes somebody else that like connects these things and brings things to light and that's what I think we're gonna crack one someday someday it's gonna happen (laughs) so anyway Franklin was described as being like a really sickly child. He was constantly afflicted with colds, suffering from migraines that were really, really bad. And to the point where he would have to stop all functioning and lay down in a dark room. And actually he had, he suffered from the migraines until his early forties. As an adult, he even continued to be sick and was afflicted with a lot of bad bleeding ulcers. So he's just kind of a, a sickly, yeah. You Lots know, of issues. Yeah, kid and adult. He was a poor student. He had problems with reading and writing. When he was in the fifth grade, um, his mother, Ruby, hired a college student to tutor him, but the extra studying did not help his grades at all. He struggled throughout high school, and he changed schools before he transferred to a high school in Compton where he enrolled in a work-study program. 
and he went to school in the morning and then did a job in the afternoon. And I apologize because I think that I forgot to mention to you that we are located in California. Okay. Yep. So I think you I had did, said something about Los Angeles. Okay. But. I thought that I did. It was in my notes, but I'm like, did I read that? I don't, I don't remember. So, yep. And Compton, you know, I thought you'd probably figure it out, but who knows? We do have a lot of non-American listeners as we well. We do. You, yeah. So. All right. So he went to school in the morning, then did, did his work in the afternoon. He was not book smart, but he was really, really good at fixing vehicles. Nice. He be he actually was kind of nicknamed like being a gear gearhead. He decided for when he was a teenager, like one of the ways that he would impress girls and show lo- local gangsters that he was somebody that that he could there that they could go to. He knew how to drive, how to fix cars, how to do all this mechanical stuff. Actually, Lonnie Senior, his dad taught him to drive when he was seven. Oh my gosh. And when he was 14, his dad gave him his first car and allowed him to drive it around the neighborhood as much as he wanted to, which also impressed the ladies, too, I'm sure. Oh, I'm sure. sure. And on top of it, he was a fast talker and a flirt and really good at telling women what they wanted to hear to get what he wanted out of them. So if you're like, you know, 13, 14, and you see this slick kid riding around in a car abs driving sweet a car mm-hmm, mm-hmm. panty dropper yeah right you're gonna there. be all about it yep. for sure his first childhood crush was on a neighborhood girl when he was about eight years old in the eighth grade he fell for a girl named kate and lost his virginity virginity that's just how we're gonna say virginity his virginity when he was 14 years old they were a couple for about another year, and then in ninth grade, he dated a classmate named Shannon until she moved out of state at the end of the school year. Franklin had told some people that Shannon was pregnant and that she had a son by him, but it's unclear if this is true. Oh, wow. We still so he might have just been day. like, yeah, I got a girl at home and a couple kids. Yeah, at 14, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I, I'm smoking not sure. a cig. Yeah, oh, okay. driving his car. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Got her, knocked her up. Like she moved out of the state. old lady back home. Right. <laughs> I don't don't know, but that is the you're picking up what I'm putting yeah, down here. Yeah. Now his next major romance was with a girl named Rachel, and they dated through 11th and 12th grade. At this youthful point in his life. As stated in the grim, uh, in the book that I mentioned earlier, he appeared to others to be mild mannered and a respectful young man with a gift of gab. I love mm. how she put that. The gift of gab. I too have been affiliated with the gift of gab. It's really catchy to say. This is about the point where things start to change. In 1969, when he was 16 years old, Lonnie Franklin was arrested twice for grand theft auto. Again, doesn't really surprise me with his affinity for vehicles and how he would impress local gangsters. He would steal cars for them, Mm -hmm. hotwire them, right? So that doesn't really surprise me. And because he was a 16-year-old boy is why they were using him. Right. (laughs) The following year, he was then arrested for burglary, burglary, burglary. Words are hard today. Words are hard. It's okay. Then he was expelled from high school just two weeks before graduating for getting into a fight with a classmate. Oh, ouch. That would be awful. That would really suck. So he went to work as a box boy until his father suggested that, suggested that he join the military. On July 26, 1971, just one month shy of turning 19, he joins the U.S. Army. And he did his basic training in Fort Ord in um, Monterey Bay. In January of 1972, he was deployed overseas and stationed with the 71st Air Defense Artillery at the Kelly Bar- Barracks in Stuttgart, Germany. And that was where Franklin's true sexual deviance begins to come to light. Oh. Franklin, Lonnie Franklin maintained a public persona as a doting father and later grandfather, and as a kind and thoughtful neighbor who helped needy and elderly people with their car problems. That's what the vibe that he puts out through adolescence, 
through his adult years, and then later into his middle age years as well. So he's like a good old guy that'll help people out. he's wearing some new balances. He's rolling under your car to change your oil and fix your... He sounds like a great guy on the surface. You know, yes. But it was when he joined the military that he first got an affinity for his sexual deviance that we will talk about later. And actually... I will mention, he used to fix his neighbor's cars for free. A, a very lot of, handy thing to have. In his neighborhood, he knew that a lot of people didn't have money. He So they would go and buy the parts and he would install them. Or sometimes he would even buy the parts for them and install it. Wow. Like, on the outside, he really looks like Was a, a good really good guy. Sure. Yeah. And people were like, yeah, we knew he had connections with mechanics, so he would get the parts cheaper. And would just fix it for free. Like, of course we trusted him. Um, He was said to always have a smile on his face. He loved to talk sports. And his favorite crime shows. He was a true crime fan. I'm not mad about that. So to his neighbors, they're like, he was a huge chatterbox. He was a huge gossip. He would flag people down, like, in an oh, obnoxious of, way in the those. neighborhood okay. to then be like, did you hear about Karen? Is it wrong? I'm still not mad about this. Yet. No. It, there was like, actually one neighbor that described it of like, listen, you didn't even have to be close to him. If he saw you pull out of your driveway and he was outside, but you're an obnoxious yardage away from him, he's coming. he would run to your vehicle and be like... Did you hear what yes, happened? Yes, so-and-so in the neighborhood was doing such-and-such such with whom and whom. You know, it It was just, he I mean, was the gossip. It's We all have one. We all have one in our neighborhood. We do. We absolutely do. I might be the one in my neighborhood. Same as That's maybe sure. why I'm not upset yet. Yes. So, yes, yeah, so they're like, he talked a lot all the time, and... All the other neighbors would kind of just be like, they would compare him, compare him to like different um, 70s and 80s sitcoms of the time and like some of the chatty women that were on the sitcoms, you know, like, <laughs> okay, oh, yeah, yep. old Lonnie, he, he caught knows. me and I had to stand there and listen to him talk for He's probably that guy, if he gets you, you're not getting away. It is. That's exactly how you're they described him. Away. Like, they know you had to run from him if you were in a hurry because otherwise. <laughs> you're not leaving. Yeah. Yep. But then there's part of you that wants to hear the gossip. Yeah, and like it's the yeah. I want to know how bad was Karen's dye job, right? <laughs> you know who snuck me. out of that house the other For day at sure. lunch? Yes, yes. Where, what, who's having the affair? Why was the UPS worker there for so long? Exactly. He's, he was delivering a package. It's like, all right. oh, I gotta get back to work, but I really want to hear what right. Lonnie has to tell yes. me. So on the surface, Franklin and his wife appeared to have a good marriage, but in reality, he had a bevy of girlfriends and prostitutes that his wife, Sylvie, oh, didn't know about or didn't care or or, or ignored. I don't know. So it sounds um, like by day he loved to be that stand-up helpful guy that just knew all the neighborhood stuff and, and he loved night, him some. By night, he was hitting the streets. He liked some sex work. He uh, he bragged. Some of the things he would gossip about was bragging about the girls mm. that he got. New Balance on the streets, mm-hmm. freak in the sheets. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's exactly how we should describe this man. Yeah, yeah. I will note too that he didn't use drugs or anything like that. Um, he would drink occasionally. He had his first drink when he was eight. It was a can of malt liquor so he got drunk never touched malt liquor again and but but when he was in the army and stuff he'd have an occasional beer um i don't know if i'm i think it's in my notes later but i'll just jump to it but he ends up being he got dishonorably discharged in the army i see so that didn't go well for him i think i do get to that later i wrote these notes a few days ago so forgive my memory I've been baking a lot of cakes and it's, stuff. We've had a lot of baking. Working full-time, then baking, then kids, sports, and researching. You know, all in a day's work. Pretty soon it'll start coming through on the podcast. Like, you know. And so he was baking a triple layer. <laughs> right. Fish cake. <laughs> yes. I mean, wait. He was killing someone. Right. Um, I don't know. Our two worlds are wild. Yes, they are. <laughs> 
So his his wife Sylvia. I don't exactly know ex- when they got married. Um, I think it was pretty early on. He was like in his early twenties when him and Sylvia got married. But he had at least four girlfriends during that marriage. And his first one was named Alexis, and this started in 1982. They saw each other every three or four weeks, and the relationship continued for a couple of years. Now, after Alexis, we know that there was a registered nurse that he met at a supermarket. So, you know, he's just picking up some kale, (laughs) some carrots, and gets himself a a nurse named Beverly. And so he begins seeing her in the mid-80s. Now, Sonia was his last known girlfriend. She was with Franklin um, when he worked at John's Incredible Pizza Company. That's the actual name. Why <laughs> are like we? It. Why are we not Amber and Charnel's Incredible cr- Podcast? <laughs> we are now. Oh. Um, now, it was actually at this pizza company that undercover detectives collect his DNA. Oh. Okay. Interesting. Yes. He's already under investigation, and we'll get to it. Okay. To supplement his girlfriends, he spent time with his sex workers that... This man had a lot on his plate. Boy, you know, people say that about us, too, but I see you can fit lots of stuff into every minute of the day. If you manage your time, you can do a lot of things. You absolutely can, and Lonnie Franklin is... One that Living proof. He was good at time management, and he lived every minute to the fullest here. He actually really liked to brag to his friend circle about the different sex workers that he picked up. Oh. Um, one in particular um, friend of his was Ray Davis. Now, Ray loved cars. So he's he liked to talk cars and drag racing to Frank to Lonnie Franklin. All right, but like Lonnie would emerge from his garage holding different stacks of photos that he had taken of various women, all nude, and Davis does become a key witness later in the trial that we'll talk about. But most of the photos did have the women's faces come cut out of the frame. But he would approach him and say, like, these are my girls. Ew. Yeah. And he would just brag just about like them. A, in his garage. A Tuesday. That he owns with his wife. It's like, look at these. I just, That's I don't. so awkward. I just don't have friends that are like that. Like, I don't get that. I'm not going to lie. I mean, we share a lot of things. But if you broke out pictures of male nude sex workers, I probably be caught off guard like hey look so look at my beauties here yeah wouldn't you be like so how's matt right (laughs) like what what you doing in your spare time right if you're just like look at these balls right also do you wash your hands before you bake the cake (laughs) yes i do (laughs) we we do wash our hands we do we do extensively so it's obvious to these neighbors that he's boasting to, because it was only specific neighbors, you know, that he knew that he could boast about his women with, that sex was a constant in his mind, just always. When he wasn't boasting about the pictures or his recent sexual conquests, then he would also show his friends bags full of bras and panties that he had bought for his quote-unquote girls that he hid in his garage and camper on his property away from his wife Sylvia. And this is just gross. He named his girls according to the size or shape of their breasts and other body parts. So he referred to one as droopy titties. (gasps) Stop it. No. Oh yes. my god, I would not want to be droopy titties. Right? That poor woman. Gravity is real. And she okay? has more than a pair of low setting breasts. Absolutely. Ah. Another one was Big Leg. She can't help that either. This man is horrible. It did not give more explanation. I don't know why she was called Big Leg. Were I mean, both I have of them questions. Big or was only one of them big? I don't know. I have questions. As someone who is now called Peg Leg, if you see in <laughs> previous episode, listen to the previous episode we we discovered. I, I do not appreciate this man no. nicknaming his ladies this way. 
And another one was Big Butt. Okay, listen, All Sir right. Mix-a-Lot had a whole song he, about it. Yeah, I mean, he liked himself some... And this is what mine would be. Skinny leg. We can't help it. I have a high metabolism. So we one with a big leg yes, and Yes, one with skinny, one skinny leg. Oh my goodness. And if they didn't have anything that he could warrant a nickname from, he would just refer to them as my friend or my girl. Now, these nicknames are not associated with any victim. Otherwise, I wouldn't have even went there and told right, you. Any okay. of those. These are just the type of man that he is. And he'd tell this to the neighbors. Like, Absolutely. So like, I was with here, droopy titties earlier. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Oh, my God. I was with skinny leg last night. I can't handle yeah. them. I yeah. can't. Franklin confided to his neighbor that I'm calling him by his last name, just so you know. But okay. I, I gotcha. mean, it's Lonnie Franklin, but I wrote it in my notes as just Franklin. So he told his neighbor, uh, Mr. Davis there, I was telling you about that he would sneak out at night when Sylvia was asleep and search for sex workers on the nights that she would await that she was awake he would tell her that he was going out for donuts oh that is the worst excuse to leave the house at midnight or 3 oh, just need some donuts it also gross to me that you're just calling these sex workers donuts right so, oh. yeah. Now, I'm assuming that at this point, Sylvia did not know that he was doing this or was God, she? Don't you want to think? I don't know. I don't have that information. She wasn't okay. interviewed. I mean, I'm just going to say, I like, know how you would feel if your husband was like, I'm going to get donuts. Hell yeah. I'd be like, let's go, bitch. Yeah. I love me some Krispy Kremes. <laughs> yes. Let's go do this together. A hundred percent. Where are we getting I'll donuts tonight? I'll take chocolate with the cream filling. Wink, yeah. wink. I just can't imagine somebody being like, oh, no big deal. Okay, just go no. you know, get me go. an apple fritter. Right. Nope. Yeah, bring me back the fritter. <laughs> Sucker for a good fritter. Right. Uh, no. So, Lonnie, uh, on occasion, he would pull up his car to his neighbor, Mr. Davis, with one of the girls in the car. He would be like, so where'd you get this girl from? And he'd be like, oh... I got her last night. The girls never talked to him, anything like that. It's almost like he was proud of it, like he wanted to show it off. 100%, but only to certain people. Uh, To everyone else, he is the New Balance-wearing, helpful, handy man in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Yep. Those who knew this side of him as the unfaithful husband and the player and the man who could convince women to have sex with him and pose for all these, his homemade porn, all that stuff... He was also known for showing them his twenty-five caliber pistol that he carried in his front pocket. What kind of pistol are we talking about here? <laughs> Not the baby pistol that he uses <laughs> to insult women with, but an actual, the actual pistol. pistol. Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. In the mid-1980s, the Los Angeles Police Department become aware that there seems to be a ser- a serial killer targeting black women who were chronic drug work users and sex workers. Okay. So at this point in time, this is the mid eighties. They dubbed the, the media dubbed this person, the South side slayer. They believed this person to be responsible for stabbing and strangling at least 13 sex workers between 1983 and the end of 1985. At one point, the murders were known as the Strawberry Murders because strawberry was was actually being used as slang for women who engaged in sex for drugs. I see. So there's okay. like a special slang term, I guess. In September 1985, which we have the LAPD, the LAPD, <laughs> doing the investigating here so i just want everyone mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. the 1980s oh, lapd i get chills thinking i can smell it. the cigarette smoke now oh for sure it was just i see the yellow tinted walls me too me too and the tight pants with the belt pulled up with the tucked in button down shirt with a slight and a mustache bulge. yeah oh for sure yeah yeah we're having oh, a scotch on break we are scotch at lunch we are and uh, so they described the case at a press conference, and they were asking for tips from the public, you know. And at this point in time, the press and the community were kind of like, I'm sorry, but this you're telling me that you're connecting these 13 
sex workers' crimes. Between 1983 and 1985, to the same person and dubbing them a serial killer, and you're just now, in September 1985, informing us? So it's been two years, and you're just now letting the public know there's a possible serial killer on the loose. So thanks, Lapida. Oh, God. That's, yeah, that they, is terrifying. So they're, they know that they're under heavy scrutiny at this point in time. So what happens is that there were a lot of activists that came forward to hold weekly protests outside of the LAPD's headquarters in an effort to pressure the department into forming a task force for the murders with the specific attention given to the investigation of the night stalker Richard Ramirez that was going on yeah which if you're not familiar Richard Ramirez a serial killer who targeted women um, in Los Angeles and San Francisco and one particular activist Margaret Prescott accused the LAPD of indifference to the deaths of women who were poor black drug users and sex workers which of course the LAPD denied but it just really felt like that that they're like this didn't bother to mention it right like you gave you know the south central murders were giving attention to the night stalker where they're getting all kinds of press attention but for these addicted black sex workers you're not giving any attention yeah, to. There's no Why coverage. is there not a task force? Yeah. Why? Are, and I see, absolutely, you should be protesting about that. By January 1986, 15 murders had been linked to this case. More detectives were added to the LAPD Sheriff's Department investigation. They became known as the Southside Slayer Task Force. They did eventually join a bring about a task force but in 1986 the case is still under investigation they still the community activists and different community groups actually the black coalition fighting back serial murders that's actually an entity um in march 1986 pressured them the los angeles city council to increase the reward money that they were offering for information on the killings from ten thousand dollars to twenty five thousand dollars because it's 1986, and we're still, we've got our task force, but the task force not is not doing anything, okay? Now, what happens in late 1986, there was conflicting MOs because some, some descriptions of some of the murders caused the investigators to doubt their original theory of a serial killer respons- being responsible for all the murders. So... Evidence was suggesting that there were several serial killers, possibly four or more, were murdering women in South Los Angeles. And so the Southside Slayer Task Force began to wind down in 1987 because of the lack of results relative to the expense and manpower that was being used. Okay. It would have been so scary to live there. Definitely. Because they're like, you know what? We have this South Central Slayer Task Force that's not really getting anywhere. But because we have some conflicting MOs with these cases, there's very possibly upwards of four serial killers at the same time roaming around. So horrifying to think about. Yes, absolutely. So then they're like, this task force just for the Southside Slayer is costing us too much money. And so in December 1987, there was almost non-existent clues at that point. And so they kind of dismantled the task force. Now, over the following years, there were other serial killings, okay, and other people caught. We have the Southside Slayer, which that were originally thought to be connected to the Southside Slayer. They actually caught four different killers. So they weren't completely off. They did have convoluted the conflicting MOs. They did eventually be able to track down Michael Hughes, Daniel Lee, Seibert, Chester Turner, and, and Ivan Hill committing at least one of the murders, not all together. These are four different individuals. They weren't operating as a group. Uh-huh. Um, four different individuals that did end up being convicted of murdering a victim that was originally put into the Southside Slayers grouping task force. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. As one of their possible victims. So 
what I'm basically getting at here is that this is very convoluted, right? It's very confusing. It's happening over a span of years. And unfortunately, the victims are very specific here, but they don't have a lot of family to come forward and keep investigations going on their behalf. I mean, they have this uh, different coalitions and different activist group, and that's about it that's coming forward for them. So I'm going to tell you about some, there's, there's many victims here, so I don't mean to just go through quickly. It's just that there's, there's just so many. We know that victim Judith Simpson, Cynthia Walker, and LaTanya Johnson were all murdered with a nine millimeter caliber, caliber pistol in late 1988. Okay. They were also investigated as part of the Southside Slayer Task Force. Originally, a sheriff's detective, Ricky Ross, was arrested for the murders after being found with drugs and a sex worker in a vehicle that had a rusted 9mm Beretta semi-automatic pistol in the trunk. Oh. Yeah. Ricky Ross was charged with the murders after his gun was forensically linked by the LAPD to the bullets from the murders connected to um, these three women. He was released after an independent forensic analysis found it unlikely that Ross's gun was the murder weapon. And all three of these murders remain unsolved still. Really? Yes. So it's a nine millimeter. So all three of these women were originally on the Southside Slayer Task Force victim list. Okay. Because of the use of the nine millimeter pistol in their murders. Gotcha. And they fit the profile of being a black sex worker. Honestly, it sounds like a hot mess going on at this time. Like, there's killers all over, and they're like, maybe it's this one. Might be this sheriff's deputy. Might not be that works for the LAPD. Right. It's like, uh, yeah, it might be this. The and we just have so many victims, so many murdered people. This is so scary to me. Yes. Now, even more scary. One particular group of killings. That again were linked by these common elements. This one was the use of a 25 caliber firearm. If you remember, Lonnie Franklin liked to show off his 25 caliber. Oh, he firearm. did. Yeah, mm-hmm. I do remember. At this point in time, it these these murderers were or this group was still part of the Southside slaying like task force, but where it's throwing them off is the different mil, different millimeter, different type of gun, but it's still. A gunshot wound. Gosh, we had Dorothea running around out there, too, burying people in her backyard. Uh What a time to be in California. Right. Awful. Fruits and nuts. (laughs) California. fruits and nuts. The fruits and nuts of California. Now, I will tell you the first known murder in this series was the murder of Deborah Jackson in August 1985, which was linked to the next murder, August 1986, of Henrietta Wright. And that was confirmed by a forensic firearm examination. Again, the 25 caliber. By 1987, there were seven victims that were linked to the same 25 caliber gun. All of, of them had been shot in the chest at close range. And then two decades later, these start coming up again in this same exact fashion. And so that is where the media starts dubbing this person, still unknown at this point in time, the Grim Sleeper. I see. Due to the long period between murders. Now, what happens is in May 2007, the slaying of Janisha Peters, she was 25, was linked through DNA analysis to at least 11 unsolved murders in Los Angeles, the first of which occurred in 1985. Oh, wow. Yes. And I I think I'm with you. I don't believe he went all of that time and just didn't kill there, anybody. There is no way. And, like, at this point in time, we don't know that it's Lonnie Franklin. Okay? All they have is they're like, holy shit, we were, we've got DNA from this, from the uh, Janisha Peters slaying. Uh-huh. That connects with all of these other 11 victims. But these 11 victims happened in the 80s. Right. What the heck? And, I mean, it would really make you think that, okay, maybe he was incarcerated. So, like, why aren't we looking at inmates? Right. That would be my first thought is, like, there's this resting period because he was, in, you know, this person was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. 
the LAPD, after this discovery of Janisha Peters and linking her to the 11, you know, 11 different unsolved murders in Los Angeles, the LAPD formed what was called the 800 Task Force, Task Force, which had six different detectives as, and was overseen by the um, robbery homicide unit. And after a four-month-long investigation, the LA Weekly investigative reporter Christine Pelisek broke the news of the task force's existence and the link between Janisha Peters' killings and the earlier murders. And included in that, when she broke it, she was highlighting the silence of the mayor at the time, Antonio Villagarosa, and the police chief, William J. Bratton, regarding this man's existence and walking among this, I shouldn't say man, this killer's existence, walking among society, and no one has been told all these years. LA Weekly was the first to inform the families that there, you know, all these 11 unsolved murders uh-huh. were victims of a serial killer. That's how they find out. Wow. Yes. That would be horrible to. Like, have to find that out yeah. after. It to be like, okay, this Janisha Peters is linked to these 11. And I will get to, I will name all of the victims at the end here. Uh-huh. It's just, it There's would so be many. far too confusing if I tried to name them. And honestly, we don't know the exact, like, date and orders of things. And some victims have not been found. And so, like, I'll piece it together more so in the end. This is just how it played out in real time. To the world. I see. So a lot of them didn't even know really that it was going on and that there was a serial killer walking among them and nothing was being done. Because nobody said anything. Right. That's so scary. Yes. So in early September 2008, LAPD announced that they were offering a $500,000 reward to help catch the killer that the the community only knew about because of Christine Pelisek's release of that information. Okay. And so... On November 1st, the case was featured on um, America's Most Wanted, uh, 2008. On February 25th, 2009, Police Chief Bratton addressed the press for the first time regarding the case, at which time the police formally gave the killer the Grim Sleeper nickname, which also was what Christine Pelisek had dubbed him in her um, breaking of the case, the LA Weekly investigative report. And... They also released a 911 call from the 1980s in which a man reported seeing a body being dumped by Lonnie Franklin. Now, we don't know that it's Lonnie Franklin, but I'm just telling you it was Lonnie Franklin. (laughs) Giving a detailed description of him, a license plate number, and a van connected with a, um, a cosmopolitan church that was, that's no longer in service now, but. So we have a 911 call back then Uh in the 80s with all of this. None of that information was released to the public until February 25th, 2009. Oh, my gosh. That's just really crazy to think about. Yes. There was a survivor of Lonnie Franklin, and her name was Anitra Washington. Christine Pelisek actually got an interview with her in March 2009. And we don't know, again, at this time that it's Lonnie Franklin, but she just knows that she, that, you know, she tracks down this woman who survived a man trying to kill her with the same thing, the same, it matched the description, same um, gun, all of that stuff, right? So she described him as a black man in his early 30s. He looked neat, tidy, kind of geeky. He wore a black polo shirt tucked into khaki trousers. I'm telling you, that new balance, we called it, uh-huh. right? Uh-huh. She also described the interior and exterior of his vehicle. They have a survivor. And again, this is not information that was ever released to the public at the time. This is how he got along, away with it for so long. Yeah. Nobody knew what was going on. So that he was just silently killing people. Right. Right. That is just, I can't even believe that. Um, this happened for sure like that a serial killer was on the loose this whole time what was their reason was it the lack of regard for the 
the population of women or was it the just we didn't want to cause a, a scare? That's a big part in this case is they really feel like it was the population that was being targeted that they were like, uh, yep, that were just completely seen as unmissed. Wow. And it's terrible. Terrible, terrible. So he continued to be able to do this for several decades. Yes. And now I will say Lonnie Franklin in 2003 was convicted of a felony and he served three years of supervised probation. He didn't do time, but he had that supervised probation. Okay. And they did not collect any DNA from him from him at that time because in 2004 is when a law, Proposition 69, passed which requires DNA to be collected from all felons and anyone arrested on some specific charges. So they missed collecting his DNA by like a year, less than a year, actually. And so it also requires the that DNA to be put into the DNA database. Okay. So authorities collected and sorted through thousands of DNA samples while Lonnie Franklin was on probation. But they didn't have his because they didn't collect it because he was put on probation in 2003. Oh, my gosh. While When he's on probation and this law passes, his DNA was supposed to be entered into the system, but was not because the probation officer did not collect the samples from people who were on unsupervised probation between November 2004 and August 2005. The probation department did not have the resources, they said, to collect the samples until August 2005. What? Mm -hmm. That's that that was their cover up. You know what I mean? Like, that's what they were saying. Like, oh, we didn't have the resources. So if he was on unsupervised probation, but he was sentenced to three years supervised probation. So nice, when nice fluffy answer there. When <laughs> you're saying, oh, nope, we didn't collect it on people that were on unsupervised probation. Well, here's the thing. You didn't collect it from him and he was on supervised probation. So, shame, shame. Yeah. So I bet you're probably wondering, like, how did they then really find this man, right? I am very much wondering, yes. So when they, remember I mentioned when he was on probation, not getting his DNA collected, even though he should have been getting his DNA collected, they were searching through the DNA database? I do remember. So they're searching, and you know what they end up finding? What? They find a similar DNA belonging to Lonnie Franklin's son, Christopher, who had been convicted of a felony weapons charge in 2008. It takes them years. Yes, it does. Christopher was too young to have committed the murders, but its familial DNA match led investigators to look at his father, Lonnie. Interesting. His offspring leads them right to him. Because there was DNA left on these victims, of course. Uh Uh-huh. Right? So they have that, but they just couldn't match it with anyone. Funny how these things work Until out. Until they match it with Christopher, who had his DNA collected when he was arrested in 2008. So they actually collected his. They did actually collect his. Just not his father's. Yeah. Something from that pizza place and they just held on to it? Or? Well, I'm getting to it. Oh, okay. One undercover police officer pretended to be a waiter at a restaurant where Franklin, where Lonnie Franklin ate. He collected dishes, silverware glasses, and pizza crust to obtain DNA. And they then used a piece of discarded pizza along with saliva found on the victims to establish a DNA match. I want that job. I want to be the person that's like in disguise, like going. The undercover like yeah. police officer, for sure. So much fun. For sure. I would so, be creative with my disguises too. It was his son and Eating pizza that brought this man down. So, and the detective was just hanging out waiting to collect the things. Yep, he was undercover after they connected, you know, Lonnie as Lonnie Franklin as being the likely perpetrator. Um, They're like, let's let's get his DNA. They found out where he liked to hang out. They did an investigation for once. They did an investigation. (laughs) They did a real investigation. Real police work. Collected his uh, his DNA that was discarded freely and uh, matched it against 
the victims that they had, uh, saliva that was left on the victims. And then the DA, Stephen Cooley, publicly identifies the suspect as 57-year-old Lonnie David Franklin Jr., a mechanic who had worked between 1981 and 1988 for the city of Los Angeles in the sanitation department and briefly for the LAPD. Uh-huh. What? On July 7th, 2010, Lonnie Franklin was arrested. They charged him with 10 counts of murder, one count of attempted murder, and special circumstance allegations of multiple murders in the case. Um, in 2010, the LAPD released 180 photos of women found in Lonnie Franklin's home after unsuccessful attempts to identify the, in, the individuals. There are possible uh, additional victims. So police chief Charlie Beck was, was quoted saying, these people are not suspects. We don't even know if they are victims, but we do know this. Lonnie Franklin's reign of terror in the city of Los Angeles, which spanned well over two decades, culminating with almost a dozen murder victims, certainly needs to be investigated further. That's 2010. In all, investigators found over a thousand photos and several hundred hours of video in Lonnie Franklin's home. The images show mainly black women of a wide age, age range from teenagers to middle age and elderly, often nude. Police gave Lonnie Franklin, uh, or police believe that Lonnie Franklin took many of the photos, which show both conscious and unconscious individuals dating back 30 years. Oh my gosh. The photos were released to the public in an effort to identify the women. On November 3rd, 2011, Reuters reported that the police were considering Lonnie Franklin as a suspect in six more slayings of additional female victims. The police were investigating two of the six as potential victims killed during a 14-year lapse between the initial like time of the Grim Sleepers murders that ended in 1988 and then several more that began in 2002 that matched the M.O., so they're like, we have six additional that we're saying happened between 1988 and 2002. So he didn't go to sleep for those years. Yeah, I don't think he did either. Of the remaining four victims, two bodies were discovered in the 1980s and two were, re were reported missing in 2005. But the remains of two others were never found. Um, they know that they're missing. They've been reported missing. And they were in the right area. They matched the right profile, but they have not been found. I just cannot believe he got away with this for so long. And honestly, who knows how many? Oh, that yeah, that's just it. Because he ends up being charged with 10 murders, one attempted murder. And, of course, he was held without bail. But you know there's probably countless others, you know, especially if he targeted sex workers. It's like they maybe... Nobody reported them missing, mm -hmm. and they just didn't have anybody. And yep, and he's not talk He's not given information. Of course, right? Yeah. So what happens is he was never charged in the death of a suspected eleventh victim because the DNA evidence was not found. The MO matches, but there's no saliva. There's no skin. There's no DNA evidence from that one to to you know concretely match him, and. There was lots of delays. There was a lot of pretrial discoveries. I mean, as you can imagine, they're trying. They're going after ten murders and one attempted murder that they know of, but they know there's more. Yeah, there's a lot of information to go through here. So after many delays, they finally get a trial started on September sixteenth, two thousand and sixteen. Oh my gosh, this is crazy. So it started in February. Closing arguments began May 2nd, 2016. Went on for three months. So the jury, though, began deliberating on May 4th. On May 5th, after they, they come back with their conviction, guilty on all counts. And he was sentenced to death. Oh. Oh, yeah. We they, have another death? We do. Guess. Yep. Yep. It was actually at his sentencing hearing a week later, May 2nd, 2016, that prosecutors came forward with evidence relating to four other possible victims. The, um, they were not among the original set of identified, identified by DNA and ballistic evidence as the Grim Sleeper victims, but they were only 
identified like after his arrest. Those three victims were Sharon Alicia uh, Dismook, Inez Warren, Georgia May Thompson, and they're identified as likely grim sleeper victims by the task force officers that were investigating unsolved missing persons and homicide um, reports dating back to 1976. So these could have even possibly been like one of his first three victims. And then a fourth, Rolina Morris, was identified from evidence found at Lonnie Franklin's garage after his arrest. Her body has never been found, but she was reported as a missing person. Prosecutors did not charge Lonnie Franklin with these murders for fear of delaying the trial even further. I mean, we've already got the death sentence. Right. We know he's being sentenced to death. Like, that's there, but they wanted them named, and right, so they did right. that. Mm-hmm. In June 6, 2016, he was sentenced to death, and I will name all of the victims that were a part of that trial. Prosecutors think that Lonnie Franklin's first victim was Sharon Alicia Desmook, Desmook that I just told you about that was named after the sentencing uh-huh. um, because that task force went all the way back to 1976. They believe that she was killed on January 15th, 1984. His first confirmed victim, though, with DNA analysis was Deborah Jackson. And her murder occurred on in uh, August 1985. I will say all of his victims were black women, but there is one suspected victim of a black man. They actually think that that was more out of like they got into a fight over one of the victims oh and And so he basically was like collateral damage i see yes you know he's one of those where it's like you would never no i guess you know what i mean like some people have a creepy look about them or you're like oh this is how he was able to maintain his (laughs) i get it regular persona in the neighborhood as the neighborhood mechanic if you were to pass him like you would never no (sighs) so scary all of his victims were found outdoors, often in alleys or short distances from downtown Los Angeles. He shot all of his victims with a twenty-five caliber gun, and he took many photos of the women and kept them in his garage. These are the victims that we know for certain, but I am sure there are more. I already mentioned Sharon Alicia Desmook. She was 21, believed to, her body was found January 15, 1984. Deborah Ronette Jackson, 29. Body, her body was found August 10th, 1985. He was convicted for her. Henrietta Wright, she was 34. Her body was found August 12th, 1986. He was convicted for that. Um, a lot of these were like different parks. They were found in different parks in Los Angeles. Thomas Sylvester Steele, 36. Now, at first, Thomas, like Franklin... Lonnie Franklin was not charged due to lack of evidence, but police said that he's a male victim instead of, you know, that. But they think that he interrupted, he either discovered one of the bodies or interrupted the murder, something like that, and became, you know. Yeah. Wrong place, wrong time, and he became a victim. Yep. Barbara Boothane Ware, she was 23. Her body was found on January 10th, 1987. He was convicted for hers. Bernita uh, Rochelle Sparks, 26. Her body was found April 15th, 1987. He was convicted for that. Mary Catherine Lowe, 26. Her body was found November 1st, 1987 in uh, a park in Los Angeles. Convicted. Ashirika Denise Jefferson, 22, was found on January 30th, 1988. Inez Elizabeth Warren, 28. She was found August 15th, 1988. This was another one who was brought in. It was presumed. This one's presumed. We can't say convicted because this was one of the four that was brought in after the sentencing. Alicia Monique Alexander, 18. September. Her body was found September 11th, 1988. He was convicted for that. Anitra Margaret Washington, 30. She was the survivor. And so he was convicted for attempted murder on her. And Georgia May Thomas, 43, was found December 28th, 2000. Princess Cheyenne Bartholomew, 15. Her body was found March 19th, 2002. He was convicted. Valerie Louise McCorvey, 35, was 
Her body was found July 11th, 2003. He was convicted. Now, uh, Aaliyah Marshall was 18. She was never found, and she was named afterwards. Um, this is suspected. There's not a DNA profile to connect, obviously, because she was never find, found. Same thing with Rolina Morris, 31, is also presumed. And number 17, Janisha Layette Peters was 25, and she was found on January 1st, 2007, and he was convicted. Wow, there's so many. 17. That we know that of. That we know of. Now, when you oh go gosh. from 1985, possibly sooner, to 2007. Yeah. And you've, there's, there's already, no way. Yeah, there's no, no way. There was not a 14-year whatever it was hiatus. There just wasn't. He may have changed his MO. I think I he remember He may have stopped this. using a gun. Right? Yeah, absolutely. He could have completely been smart enough to change his MO so that they weren't all connected. I can't imagine him just like stopping. Uh-uh. As and he much wasn't as he incarcerated. He was free yeah. that whole time. Yeah. There's no way. Until that that's he all. did, you know, got that supervised probation for three years. And that is truly terrifying to me. Yeah. To think he was out there doing this yeah. all the time and nobody said anything. Right. right. Oh, gosh. I will tell you, though, on March 28th, 2020, he was found dead in his cell. Oh. He is no longer with us, Amber. Oh, wow. I was going to ask if he was still alive. or Nope. As of 2021, uh, the, his autopsy or cause of death has not been released. Oh, so nobody knows what happened. No idea how that happened. Huh. He was just found dead in his cell. Hmm. 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 <laughs> hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the grim sleeper in in an hour long episode. Um, I didn't want to steal all the meat and potatoes from uh, Christina's book. She went. She did a. She worked very hard on in depth investigating and uh-huh, rich. reporting. Yes, yep, yep. So catch her book. Um, there's more on his on his personal life, and you know he was married that whole time. I did his wife. I, I think we kind of touched on it a bit, like. There were some odd things, but she had zero clue about any of this. They did end up getting divorced, yeah. But he got remarried, and, I mean, he just, he really did good at keeping up this entire... The the fake... Fake front. Yeah. And, wow. Yeah. He must have. He, made, he maintained this for mm-hmm. a long time, and, you know, we see people get sloppy over time. I mean, there was a survivor, but like he, yes. for the most part, maintained this very quietly. It's like, I'll fix your car by day and I'm going to go get, uh, yeah. I mean, isn't that droopy just, titties just kind of crazy? Night. Yeah. He's so just gonna, crazy. Yep. I don't, I don't know. And he, there's not like information about like what he, why he says why. Just going to he get didn't donuts. Have, he didn't have like, the typical childhood that we usually associate with a serial killer. Yeah, I really. was going to say, it doesn't sound like it was horrible. No. Like, we hear some people that just have horrible childhoods. Right. I do wonder if that car accident, if he was in utero, was there head trauma? Right. At that point in time, before he was even born? Very possible. I'm going to leave you on a little lighthearted story that was sent to us by a listener. And it's just a cute little snippet. Um, I don't have permission to use her name, so I'm not going to. But she sent us this. The world's happiest criminal. This 99-year-old true crime fan has always dreamed of being arrested. When the Dutch police found out that this was on her bucket list, they picked her up, handcuffed her, Threw her in the slammer, and she enjoyed every minute of it. And there are photos of her just living her best little criminal (gasps) life. She's so excited. Oh, my gosh. She is so cute. 99. Oh, I love the picture of her, like, holding the cuffs up. Like, look. look, I've been booked. (laughs) That is so precious. Yes. It was on on her bucket. She's a true crime fan, and she wanted to know what it, but... She didn't want to know so bad that she went out and committed a real crime. So that's awesome. Oh, but she still got the experience. Yes. 99, which was also kind of funny of the police department. Like, way to check off a 99-year-old woman's bucket list right. item. That's cool. That's it's really just, awesome. She I just is love the cutest this thing. This one where oh she's gosh. smiling just out of her gourd. <laughs> she I is adorable. 
Yes. So there you are. There's a horrible serial killer that you may or may not have known about. I didn't know a whole lot about it. I didn't either. I think I remember seeing his face like um, as this kind of surfaced, but I still feel like it didn't get a ton of coverage no. despite the horrible. I agree. And that, that is kind of outrageous to me. There's really not a whole lot of news articles. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Like Christine's book is about, it is absolutely the most in-depth thing that you could find on this case. That is just, just crazy completely. to me. And what, so, I'm sorry, what was the book called again? It's called The Grim Sleeper, The Lost Women of South Central. By Christine Pelsick. Maybe at a certain point, because they had been so quiet about it, they're like, yeah, this is too far gone. We can't say anything. I I don't know. Yeah, that's very possible. So scary. Follow us on social media. Message us case suggestions if you'd like on on any of our socials or crimecurious at yahoo.com. And if you want a lot more content than what we currently give you, uh, join Patreon, crimecuriouspatreon.com. Also, customized GIF when you join the Patreon group. Yeah, when you join our Patreon, you get access to our private Facebook group. Which, by the way, if you guys have joined Patreon and you're not a part of our group. Come on in. Look at your welcome email. It has a link to the group. Come in. Amber will give you a, a customized personalized gift. gift to welcome you to the group. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And we have lots of fun in there. So We do. Yeah. All right. Until next time, everyone, stay safe out there. Keep it curious. And keep listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye for now. That was beautiful. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. <laughs>